1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So as we record, we are moving towards the end of May as we're recording this. Uh, and we are outside. We are. In the sunshine. And you know what the, the most exciting up. thing is? We have our guest in person here we, outside. We distance. have a guest so in lovely. person. He's Yay. about 35 feet away from <laughs> all of us. No, but but still safely distanced. Oh. And uh, you are going to introduce our guest in a little yes. bit. But uh, before that, uh, w- you're filling in for the absent cupboard master. Allison. Yes, temporarily yeah. I, I will try to fill those shoes. Uh, we we today have got a lovely uh, gin and tonic from the Woods Distillery here in North Vancouver. Now they've put together these gin and tonic kits, so they've also created like these cordials that go with them. And this one is the rosemary and thyme, so it's a little more like. How did you determine how much of the? You oh, okay, with you my heart. With okay, so the <laughs> gin. And it's how I mix most of my gin and tonic. Gin tonic and rosemary and thyme. and rosemary and thyme cordial. So yeah, Amanda has some too. Mm-hmm. Like it's very herby, but it's sweet enough. It's I don't know. Quite, that's quite sweet. It is. Maybe I should have added more gin. That's Aww. okay. It's, it's we're fun. still we're still <laughs> in the morning. I know the gin is fantastic. Barely in I know the mixer is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, it's nice. So it's we'll get a nice gin and tonic while we have a great conversation. Um, I will get into introducing our guests now. So uh, joining us today, uh, Rector's Cupboard. We've got uh, Yehuda Mansell. Welcome, Yehuda. Um, Yehuda has a degree in biblical archaeology and ancient Near East studies from Ben Gurion University. Oh yep. dear, oh, yeah, you, got it. It. <gasps> you got <Yes>. it. You got it. A master's degree from Regent, and you're currently working on your PhD through VST and Durham's um, joint yes. project. Yes. Um, and we will talk about that certainly later. And you also teach at Columbia Bible College. I went there. Oh, no um, way. Yeah, a while ago, a long time ago. <laughs> Not that long. And uh, you also manage and live in an apartment in Surrey run by New Hope Community Services, which is a nonprofit providing housing and services for new refugee families transitioning to life in Canada. Um, we're so happy that you're here today, Yehuda. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. This is cool. <laughs> this is cool. I'm a big fan of Rector's Cupboard. Oh, so, you know. thank you. So um, you, I, one of the interesting things, like we've already here before we start recording, talked about skateboarding and mm-hmm. other things. And um, one of the things that strikes me about you and just uh, in, in the brief time we've kind of started to get to know each other is you have a range of interests, uh, vocationally and otherwise, which I guess <laughs> could be said of most people. But um, from skateboarding to archaeology to theology to... Um, you know, some of the community service work that you do. Uh, so tell us what you would like to tell us about your spiritual slash religious history. I, I think it's as diverse and as eclectic as everything else I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I was uh, born to Jewish parents and um, secular, and they um, 
my mom got tangled up. This is going to sound really funny. Yeah. Got tangled up when I was a little dude with some charismatic Christian reform people in our neighborhood. That is a very interesting sentence to me. I know. I don't generally link charismatic and reform. My, like my, CRC, my, like hardcore CRC. Yeah, but the yeah. whole combination, my secular Jewish. Yeah, yeah. I know. That yeah. entire sentence is wonderful. I love it. I think tangled up are the right words. <laughs> so I was doomed from the beginning. So... So that was informative time for you, or that was before you were around, or no? It was uh, I was conscious and self aware by that oh, point. Okay. But um, and so that introduced me to a different world of of uh, Christian faith. Okay. And and a weird hybrid evangelical world. Very volatile childhood, which also probably was formative, and so bounced through everything mm-hmm. from Payock to Vineyard to weird cults to independent Baptist, and every six months, eight months, really? we change out. Huh. So now, this is you making these decisions, or oh your no. parents, or both? Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> you were you were not did not get to make those decisions. Okay. That was not a consensual. Thing. However, however, I think it gave me a um, a taste for what's been going on out there. Hmm. And that was interesting. And then it gets weirder. Um, in my teens, they said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna go back to synagogue, an Orthodox synagogue, you know, just because." Wow. You so where is this geographically? Where are Edmonton. you? In Edmonton. Edmonton. Okay. So um, I didn't realize there was such a wide religious spectrum in it, Edmonton. Oh, it's all everywhere. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, without getting into too much detail, yeah. that created sort of a flavor. Well, you were just saying, Ed, so you went back to synagogue. Yeah, and then I stayed there until, you know, um, young adulthood. Jesus, wow. though, got under my skin and hasn't really... When? Always. Okay. I, 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 I couldn't escape. It was, it was... I'm not a mystic at all. Yeah. Um, but there was this idea that somebody had shared with me that God is present. He will always be present. And no matter how bad things are, and things were very bad mm. um you're not alone and that idea really stuck with me huh. theologically i've been all over the map yeah. faith is always a battle I, I, i'm a profound doubter right but um, the ideals presented by jesus yeah just won't let go of me so you you must feel like you don't quite and historically or now, but don't quite fit. Yeah, yeah. definitely. But that outsider is cool. Yeah, you know. Yeah, there's definite <laughs> positives to that, right? So, wow. That I mean, it's it's, it's it gives you s- it gives you a sense of being able to look objective. Well, as objective as we can ever be of looking from the outside, going, "Huh, that's interesting." Yeah, it's it's and I mean, you can have. You can look at people who have a more stable kind of story in terms of like, you know, I grew up in this church and went mm, there forever mm-hmm, and that's yeah. what I did. And the One my grandpa and found I, it. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> I think my experience is for the most part, people with stories like yours don't really long for that necessarily, even though some of that instability can Yeah, can well, I, every once in a while I thought, man, wouldn't it be nice to have stability? Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to yeah. feel like you fit somewhere? The closest I ever came to fitting, I think, was got involved with the CNMA. I got tricked into being a pastor. I don't know if you knew that. No. Um, anyway. <laughs> I love the way that you phrased that, Yehuda. Um, Did, were you tricked wonderful. out of being a pastor, too? Or? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> no, that was a very rational, well-planned Well-argued. So I was in pastoral work for almost 18 years. And... Um, but uh, primarily in the... Long C- game. Yeah. In CMA, you said? Mostly in the CNMA, yeah. Really? Yeah. So I felt... 
relatively comfortable in that at least where my context was on Vancouver Island, okay. it wasn't really like CNMA. So, so it, t- uh, tell our listeners what that what that. Oh, means. Christian and Missionary Alliance, yeah, yeah. you know, it has sort of roots in the Pentecostal standard renewal, kind of holiness. more evangelical. Yeah. and now today it's like means really mainstream evangelical. Yeah, mm. yeah. How how did you land there? <laughs> like I'm just trying in my mind to put everything together and sorry, I, no, so sorry. I think like, it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but somebody's like, you know, you you could be, you're a good leader, and you could. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Help yeah, us you, grow the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're kind of like you know different and creative and yeah, uh, and and so there was a, a congregational plant that was going on in Vancouver okay. Island, and I didn't know CNMA from anything else right. so it was just somebody's like hey you could work with us and i was working with youth and, and at risk youth at the time so it kind of made sense and oh, involved okay. with youth unlimited and things yep. like that so you just i think in the evangelical world you get promoted and bumped along to your uttermost level of incompetency yeah <laughs> it's just like we're gonna promote you we're gonna one day yeah. son this can all be yours <laughs> and uh, if you can engage with people and you kind of know what you're talking about i'm not saying you I think you probably knew more than just that. I'm not trying line. to make like a statement <laughs> yeah, here yeah. about you. It's, <laughs> okay. it's okay. <laughs> then, um, and, and, you know, in certain times and in certain denominations, if you're male mm-hmm. and if you, then yeah, you get, you get moved along in those positions, but you were there, you're saying you were there for quite some time. That's, yeah. Yeah. In different capacities and different zones. And um, that's how I met Brenda okay. Sasaki and yeah. we, <laughs> we survived an interesting situation together, which really? was the end of my story. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. it was it was logical and, and and methodical, and it wasn't done with angst. But it was like, huh, I don't, I don't need to keep doing this in this way, and I can keep going in a different direction and still be true to my soul, true yeah. to my mind. Yeah. Well, we, you know, kind of share that experience <laughs> a little. I mean, yeah, different. The, the <laughs> There, there, there's there's some yeah. common threads there, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would think. But yeah, no, um, no, that was yeah. Brenda was how we we learned about you, and she's like, you gotta talk to this guy. Like he's great. He's Aww. she's a big fan. Um, so obviously you're in a bit of a different place now mm-hmm. than you've been before. Uh, you're working currently on your PhD. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um. So. I, sh- I should find out what my PhD is actually in at oh, yeah, some point. Every, at some point. So many people doing that. That's like, <laughs> but but my work is on the Book of Job, and I I do a lot of work with linguistics. Hmm. And so I work in Akkadian and Aramaic and Hebrew, of course, and Ugaritic, and I'm trying to get my noggin around Sumerian right now, to a point. But I'm working on uh, legal uh, frameworks in the Book of Job. Um, so these, there's like this Neo-Babylonian sort of like this crossover. It seems that there's this framework <laughs> that's going on in Job. Like, like now when we read a John Grisham novel, like we're not lawyers, most of us, right. maybe, you, maybe you are. <laughs> no. It's a, it's a no. legal drama. Yeah. yeah we know and legal like, dramas yeah. and we, 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 it's part of our huh. culture and it's part of, and we see, I think we see that in the book of Job. Very there's much. this, there's this like narrative legal story that's going on. A lot of legal language. Mm-hmm. And I think that understanding that framework, not from a Western jurisprudence point of view, but from a Neo-Babylonian point of view, I, I think helps frame like what's going on in the theology. And it helps tell a better story. And I've been finding all this cool disputation mm. literature in, mm. in, in Sumerian and Akkadian. 
of, of how big ideas, theological ideas, morality, family law, all these things are worked out in narrative law in the same way that we read a, a John Grisham novel. Mm. Hmm. And I find that really kind of intriguing. Um, and I, I have a bias. I have a real <laughs> terrible driving bias as in this research. And, and maybe I'll, I'll prove myself wrong and I'll have a, a, a mental breakdown. But <laughs> That happens to a lot of PhDs. I know, I know. <laughs> or you just wind up writing about something else. <laughs> Yeah, prayer Jabez or something. Or yeah, no, don't do that. Oh, can we not? <laughs> so, how far are you in the work? I mean, this is just this, uh, this is well, a great program with VST and Durham. It's yeah, it's exciting it, to hear about. It is exciting. Um, no, technically, I think I've been working on it about eight years. Yeah, um, right. So, but with I've only been in the program a year. So, do you uh, are you going over to England? And st- I guess right now everything's on. <laughs> <laughs> at, at some, some at some point. the idea is yeah, yeah once gonna, things yeah we're gonna go to, we're gonna go visit Hogwarts and you know yeah yeah fantastic. Now, in terms of like you talk about. Lang- like you mentioned a number of languages there, and uh, there, and some of them kind of like I should not lost languages, but they're things yeah, that you're they're kind of lost. There. They're, yeah. they're not super well known, Todd. <laughs> um, and uh, so, in terms of language and linguistics, mm-hmm. um, first off, actually, I just was recommended to me by a friend. There's a book that I listened to recently called "This Is the Voice." Um, you might be interested in it. It's by a guy named John Calapinto. But okay. it basically, so there's a lot of linguistic kind of theory in there. But it's it's written for a popular enough audience to, but just on um, language and the human voice and how, you know, everything from modulation to, that's when we talked about like vocal, vocal fry. fry. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and like how pilots all used to speak in a particular way back in the day and yes. why they spoke like that and why they, um, so... But in your case, what do you think that it is that is fascinating to you about words and language, poetry? Oh, my goodness. I So I fell in love with Tennyson when I was a little dude. Um, well, it was partially a mad crush on Megan Follows, like Anna Green Gables. Remember? Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and so she was all about Tennyson, right? So I, I found Tennyson, and I was like 10, and I was like, oh, my goodness, you know. No really? idea. No idea what he was talking about, but it just <laughs> but you felt it. beautiful. <laughs> like it just so words. I think for me matter, and words have been mm. a place of comfort. Um, so in 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 life that was pretty brutal as a child, mm. of, of finding deep comfort in books and finding escape in those places, and finding mm. escape in ideas and comfort in ideas. Um, so that leads me into you know thinking a lot about how words work, mm-hmm. how words impact communities, how it words um, comfort and condemn um and so i think a lot about literature and so that's one of the things i just adore about job um yeah, it's and it, it's a brutal book it's a hard book oh, it's yeah, a yeah i was gonna say it, it's it's a a book that i'm like wow that that is a a lot of time and effort doing a phd to be sitting in that book yeah and i think most everybody who jumps into job invites darkness into it, yeah. i think it comes <laughs> with the territory yeah it's long too it's, it's like it just is these long speeches that are just so depressing in the end in some ways you know because <laughs> totally because yeah. they, they've got it wrong and they're searching for that but anyway yeah and yeah um so big shout out to carol newsom mm-hmm. you wrote a, re- a really good book about how dialogue works mm-hmm. in the book of joe from a literary point of view and she uh works with a a soviet um literary critic named michael bachten and he had a lot of a lot to say on how polyphonic or uh, dialogue works and when there's many voices in a conversation of how the content is actually the in-between place and how what happens Mm. not what's what's said but what happens in between what is said and so i hope to 
tear into that a little well, bit. Well, that's interesting, even in a contemporary kind of, you, you must be listening for that and how people talk these oh, days. Totally. And, and the importance of talking over one another. That, you know, when you try to stop all of that, sometimes you actually wind up preventing some of the content and some of the interaction. That is the way people relate to one another now is is that tempo of language has changed, right? Totally. And, and, you, and you know this being a pastor is you listen for not just what's said, but for yeah. what's not, not said. said. And you listen to souls and you listen mm-hmm. to... Yeah. yeah. As, as you absorb confession or you, as you absorb um, how people tell their story. Like that's... So I love story. I love, like, um, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but uh, I live with uh, refugees. And so I think an awful lot about the stories that they tell and how it takes time to get to those stories hmm. and how as you draw that out or as you listen. And then you get a little nugget. And one day they, somebody drops a bomb like, oh, yeah. And then when my mother was killed in that bombing raid, and you're like, yeah, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. I think we need to stop I, this. I, and you're just like, whoa. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I find that. It's fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, one of the things you mentioned, like working in a church, being a pastor, and the way words are used, and it's not just in like an evangelical religious community, um, it would be any kind of community, but in, certainly any kind of religious community, where as the, you know, minister, so-called, someone who's kind of often <laughs> observing and feels a few steps apart in some ways, right, from some of the community and the... Um, you realize that like the way that words are used, it's not because so much in, in kind of, I would imagine more conservative, although I you can see it on the left now too, religious context, it, there'd be like an avoidance of certain words. These are the bad words. You can't say this, you can't totally, say that. But yeah. then you could see people damaging one another with words that were very much allowed. Oh my. And you're like, okay, that person has mastered this community and how yeah. to destroy another person with words. Oh my goodness, yes. But with a smile on their face and not breaking the religious rules, you know, and just like, it's terrible to see. It's amazing. Going. I'm praying for you can be one of the most cruel oh. statements. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or would you like to go for coffee? Yeah, I, I used to say. You're like, no, that doesn't feel safe to me. No, thank I used you. To, I heard people say F you in the foyer over and over and over again just with different words yes right yes. and and you're like it's it's just interesting how and I get, that's true in any human sure. interaction context but one question i had that's kind of a big question before yeah. we is in relation to the evangelical church one of the things that's come up on this podcast and we ask this not not to be accusatory but more you know looking toward the future um and we've already kind of touched upon you know your experience in christian Mar- missionary alliance and you know, alluded to our experience, our experience in an evangelical it. church. Um, it's a question I think worth asking just to get different perspectives. Uh, is the is the evangelical church kind of in North America worth saving in terms of, like you talk about, you know, Jesus getting under your skin. If you're looking at kind of hopeful Christian ideas and theology and kind of moving forward, um, is it time to kind of let the evangelical church go or hope that something else can can come up in its place or is reform or how do you kind of touch upon questions like that? Oh boy. Well, I, I sort of look at the evangelical church as a dear friend who's going through recovery. <laughs> and you know that he's probably going to relapse. He might, o- he might OD and that might be the end of it. And but know, you're yeah. you're gonna hang in there for him not because oh, you're gonna prop up the institution. I don't I don't I don't right. care much for institutions. 
I care a lot for people. Yeah. And there are some really cool people everywhere. And yeah. and so I care about the people within the institution, yeah. but I'm not holding my breath that he's going to make it through this. That's um, a great metaphor. But I'm going to I'm going to be there for him when he relapses. I'm going to be there for the individuals when they, you know, the thing bombs and we don't we just need to look at the news every day right now and yeah. like, uh, what's going on and you're like, "Uh, this doesn't look good. This isn't yeah. this isn't sustainable." And what's emerging actually I kind of hoped that it would look better. It's actually looking uglier. Hmm. And, and and What do you mean by that? Okay, so <laughs> sorry, I'm not trying to like box you into into a position. Or no, no, no. You hate most. No, that's <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just <laughs> so anyway, I, you said it's gotten uglier. I, I there's agree. A, there's an element of ugliness in that, that that some of the voices that are emerging is the strongest ones, and then and the most powerful ones are some of the most cruel ones, mm. and that concerns me. So some of the noise that's going on in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, mm-hmm. which I know is sort of more on the fundamental wing, but yeah. it looks like the fundamentalists and it's influential. Are, are, mm-hmm. are, are co-opting yeah. the movement. And you look at some of the noise that... Some, sorry, I'm naming names, aren't I? Um, Piper, and, and, yeah. uh, and so you're going, wait a second. Mm. And you, you see some of the statements that are coming out and the, uh, the ugliness surrounding cr- uh, critical race theory. And anyways, my heart just shatters. Yeah. And it's, 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 it is ugly. And um, you look at, th- oh, well, I, I've never been a fan of Hillsong, but you look at some of the noise that's going coming around. Coming out of there like, recently. Oh, boy. Now, yeah, that's you, right. Do you see that as, as part of the these louder voices still trying to prop up this institution? Because there's part where I know in, in how I've interpreted and understood some of the stuff that's been coming out recently, I go, but where are the people that you're supposedly serving here like what what what's this doesn't seem like it's about them it doesn't seem it, it seems like you're you're trying to protect your tax status or you're trying to protect your reputation um so i wonder if you identify that it's still clinging on to this institution oh yeah and i think they're dub- it feels like it's doubling down mm. and we, 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 without naming he who must not be named yeah um how yeah it became all centered around these mm-hmm. political movements, and we can go back to the '80s. We see all that going on back then, but it—it's getting, I th- in my opinion, it's getting uglier and weirder, and it really smells like death. Mm. I think, and there's a like we mentioned institutions, and and sometimes we hear conversation about like you know corporations and various things that, and you could say it about the church as an institution or whatever. There's, I always think of it with um, corporations. I've probably said it on the podcast before, but. Like I've been to places, I'm sure you have too, where there's no corporations, and they're not always awesome. You know, there's 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 some terrible. <laughs> t- it's like I think we could have a you know an electric utility here would probably be good. Or, yeah. and so that there are really promising things that institutions and corporations and other things can do, but what you know some of the ugliness that I've seen relates to, and I think Allison's pointing towards it, um, to power and control, mm-hmm. yeah, and and fear. And because I would say some of the best people, and I don't mean this to like, you know, put people on a hierarchy. I mean this to, to kind of be grateful for people that I've shared life with. Some of the best people I've known in my life were, were in the evangelical church, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, Well, and I hear you saying that, you know, where you're talking about that you're not there to prop up the institution, but 
there are a lot of good people everywhere. Really precious people. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like kind of like a, a theme I've seen in, in some of your work that, that I've seen is like you care so deeply about people and you seem very intent to to find people that most of society doesn't seem to care about and go, no, 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 they they have value just as much as anybody else. Um, I know that, well, as we're recording it, this will be next week, but when this is put up, it'll be the week before. So a bit of a time fun thing there. But um, you're presenting at VST's Interreligious Conference. Yep. And I read your paper last night and it very much seems like you have this call towards... What's the title? Uh, Theology of Fentanyl. <laughs> it's a great title. <laughs> um, and you talk a lot about how, um, like, rehumanizing people. Um, so, so I see in your work that individuals matter regardless of where they fall in, like, what people might term, like, successful or, you know, uh, useful to society. Um, I'd, I'd love it if you could talk to us a little bit about... Uh, some of your work that you've done. Uh, clearly, you, you've done work with people who are experiencing homelessness or, or home insecurity, uh, who have struggled with with addiction issues, um, and, and you do a lot of work with refugees, people that c- like pretty consistently sit at the margins of society that a lot of people don't want to think about because it's too hard or they don't, they don't know how to. But you seem drawn to them. I do. I <laughs> Maybe it's the outsider thing, hmm. and maybe that's where that comes from. But it also comes from maybe a formative sense of how I in- imagine mm-hmm. Jesus interacts with society, hmm. and th- that informs my sense of who, who, where should I be hanging out with, uh, based yeah. upon who I. My, this is my perception of who he'd hang out with, and so I think that informs um, my being drawn to folks that are you know at risk um, or addicted, and. Not trying to solve things, mm-hmm. but to be present. And I, I, I think that we, I was once on the scene, I just arrived on a scene of a, a car, a multi-fatality car crash once. And, uh, and we, me and another nurse were like the first people there. And it began this crazy triage situation mm-hmm. of trying to figure out who could be saved or who couldn't. And there was a lady who died with me that night. And there was this realization that I was going to be the last person she would see. I was going to be the last person with her. And there was a sense of, I can't fix this. And I think a lot of life feels like that. Where I can't fix so many things. I can't fix the brokenhearted people I know. I can't fix those with addictions. Mm-hmm. I know people that I love and care about are going to overdose and die. Mm-hmm. I know that. But I would like to think that as they pass from this life to the next, mm-hmm. that they know they're loved that they know that somebody just cares, that somebody sees them, that they're valuable. And that formed, I think that was 2005, so that formed my whole outlook on ministry and pastoral mm. ministry and connection with refugees, or with mm. addiction, yeah. is I can't fix this, but I'm going to be there, and you're going you're gonna to see my eyes, and you're going to know that I love you and that you're not alone. And I think that's my particular vocation, if you will. Does that become a challenge in working with others involved in some of the same work who, who do have you know some people and well we intentioned? I would assume. This. Well, we even and, and some people are good at fixing some pretty important things and yeah. saying, okay, it's great that you have that philosophy, yeah. but we want to kind of really 
try to solve this? Does it does the, do those personality types tend to work together well, or I guess I think they do. I actually yeah. honestly think they do because I do. I have friends that are like, oh, we're yeah. gonna you know we're gonna build Change this program. This. Yeah. And I I, uh, I, I yeah. saw one one of the things I was doing at Columbia uh, for two years was running a program where we engaged students with working in the downtown east side. Um, and working in Abbotsford with with homeless folk, and there's mm. we're working with I think we were working with sixteen, seventeen different orgs down there, all sorts of varieties, all, you know, faith, not faith, yeah. and lots, of, but lots of interesting exposure to say, okay, there's all sorts of different ways of approaching this. Here's some people who are doing it really well, not so well, creatively, charismatically. Some people are just you know chasing demons out of people yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as the solution, and yeah. and other people are just feeding it's people. Such, and it's I, and such I, and a cacophony kind of it, it, that work. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't bug me. Yeah. It, it, huh. I find it fascinating. So <laughs> I have one specific role, and I know what that role is, yeah. and I don't try to pretend to be anything else. Hmm. So I do that one thing well. But I, I appreciate the orgs that are like, I think of like UGM, and they have like this high barrier. It's hard to get into their yeah. programs. But they have an amazing success yeah. rate. Building help new buildings all the time. I know, it's crazy. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And then I also know like outreach workers who are just yeah. like. Just them. They're basically homeless themselves. Yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. out there just hanging out with yeah. people, loving them. And, and yeah. I appreciate both. Yeah, it's um. I saw this uh, news report last night on Jen and I watched it on um, the national news CBC, Johanna Remiliotis. I think she's a fantastic um, okay uh, reporter and because uh, she she tends to get to the human sides of the story and and she was uh, this was just a a look at a number of families in the Brampton area, okay, in Ontario where COVID has been really high and there's a large Indo Canadian community and there's a, and it featured a few families. One one guy was a Sikh uh, background or he was Sikh who had almost died from COVID and kind of his family. Another one was this young family. Nobody had had COVID in the family, but they were living in a small apartment, you know, in one of these big apartment blocks. She was on her way to work at like ten thirty at night at a factory. And these and like anything that it is that shows you and one of the things I thought was uh, when it showed her family, like these are the hardworking people. Yeah. First of all. Yeah. Right? Like it's like I've worked hard to get where I am, which which might well be true. But often the hardest working people are, you know, on a on a lower so called socioeconomic rung and and that kind of recognition of humanity and the connection and you talk about, you know, seeking Jesus in this, right? And seeking to to emulate and that 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 kind of recognition of humanity enlivens all of those kinds of experiences where you're like i i get to be part of this and it's kind of a mess um but i but i actually had a human interaction with another person today that is uh so in in that um regard your work at new hope community services maybe tell us a little bit about it how you got involved what they do uh, well, we were living in Wally. Well, we're still living in Wally, um, and we met uh, a family at my daughter's school. And we noticed that, like everybody in her school, like she was in, she was in kindergarten at the time. Everybody in the school was from somewhere else, which was really mm. kind of you know spice of life. And um, heard about this incredible uh, building that was uh, providing housing for newcomers to Canada, refugees or asylum seekers. And we we're just like, hey, that actually sounds way more like what we care about than some of the other things we were right. involved with. Um, and it was part of a whole tra- the whole transition out of pastoring. Going, okay. Hmm. Yeah, we want to be engaged with those things. And, and then we started meeting people and hanging out and volunteering. And we're like, oh, my goodness, this feels like, you know, Israel. This feels like home in some ways. You know, there was this uh-huh. warmth and there was this community and there was this sort of sense of insanity and chaos. Um, when, when you take... 
13 families, throw them together in a building, and they're from all <laughs> sorts of... And coming from difficult circumstances yeah. in most Crazy. cases, or every yeah. case, yeah. Every every person that's there has come from somewhere else, including all of, all the staff who are, are there. We, we were all from somewhere else or have lived extensively overseas. And so there's this sort of sense of craziness and chaos. It is actually, to me, is really charming. It is. Like, yeah, I know what you're I think we have, like, I think right uh, now we have 23... It's different 20. than saying having a romantic sense of it, because it can be, oh, you know, oh, yeah. exhausting and infuriating totally. or whatever else, I'm sure. I think we have 24 children in the building right now, and most of them are between kindergarten and grade three. So you can imagine the energy level we have is just... Yeah, I'm roof. feeling like, whew, that, that's a lot. Like, I, I've got a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. I'm like, two is enough for me. I, I don't need 24. 24, you said. I think, wow. I think that's right. I think that's right right now. I have to double check. But <laughs> it's so lively and so full of life and so full of hope in a sense. Like, this is a new life for all, for all my neighbors. And they're starting over. And there's pain in that. And there's loss in that. But there's also so much expectation of goodness coming. Hmm, that's and, well they, put. and they remind yeah. me of the good things in life too. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm emo at the best of times. And so <laughs> being with my neighbors and, and, and recognizing loss and recognizing suffering, these are, these are themes that I just swim in all the time, but there's also this deep sense of, but yeah, we get to start over. We have a new life. We have a new home. Mm. We have a new hope. We're going to get a driver's license. Hey, we'll get a car. We'll like get a job, get education, master English. Um, that's incredibly hopeful. Yeah. And, and, the, and if people have arrived to Canada, they've actually got here. That means that they are already very resilient people. I was going to say, like, I, I think there, there is, there's so much about... Um, about asylum seekers and refugees that I, I'm incredibly ignorant of. Um, but I, I, I have no problem imagining how difficult it actually is to be here, like to get here, and then to be starting everything again. Like what, what are some of the actual practical things that like happen for, for the, the people that you're living with when like they come the here? Like yeah, I can only imagine like getting all the identification and not knowing the language and not knowing the customs and not knowing how kind of some of the systems work. Oh. What's been shocking to me is how complex our bureaucratic system is mm. in Canada. I didn't realize it. I thought it was like pretty seamless. It's not. It's crazy. It's not easy to uh, navigate even as a native english speaker right. it can feel contradictory i can, get, the I can just get. like be pulling out my hair or whatever hair i've left going i don't know how to solve this like huh. how do i get you to go to a dentist like how do i make sure that you get medical care how do we like these are daily battles for us at, at times and so language acquisition is always a big battle i think right now to get into good language programs is a more than a year wait for newcomers really? to canada so just wow. anybody to teach english is huge um Getting your driver's license, um, figuring out where your services are. Like, how do you get the foods right. that you need to eat? If mm. you're, you're if you're devoutly Muslim, how do you find yeah. appropriate halal food? And mm. like, there's so many things we take for granted when we move into a place that yeah, I know what I know what Safeway has, I know what Superstore has, I like mm -hmm. I know where to shop, I know what to do. But when you come to a new country, when you may have been living in a refugee camp for the last 15 years, how do you wow. adjust to that? So is that part of what your your work with New Hope is about, is just coming alongside these people, helping them find the resources that they need to do? and L Somewhat. There's, there's, uh, there's settlement workers. Okay. And they're, they're a mixed bag. There's ones that are just like rock stars. You just love them <laughs> to pieces. And there, so there are others that are just bureaucrats. But 
um, our job is to be neighbors and mm. it's, it's that simple. It's like, it's, well, yeah, it's somebody, it's every, you know, it's everybody knocking on your door, you know, at ungodly hours saying, Hey, I locked myself out of the house again. Or, <laughs> um, I'm worried about my, my, my child. I think they have a fever. What do oh. I do? Or, um, it's that, it's that stuff that we do more of. We're neighbors. We play That's together. Great. We eat together. Well, we zoom eat yeah. together. We have zoom parties over. Yeah. Pizza. It must be different right now it's too. Fun. Right. Yeah. But, uh, I was thinking, I don't know, I've been feeling this because there's a, you know, there's that article that was flying around a few weeks ago on like uh, what you're feeling right now is called languishing. Oh, yeah, Remember the languishing, languishing. Oh, Okay. Yeah, this, it was a... I, New York know, Times piece. Okay. Yeah. And it was everywhere that, that there's this, you know, so many people in general just through pandemic time and this, there's a, a feeling of like uh, emotional exhaustion or... And I'm thinking about some of the people that you're neighbors with that are neighbors for you. And as I watch a story like the one I referred to, the news story, mm-hmm. I, I look and I think, how do people like that manage just how emotionally and psychologically tired they must get? And what's the interplay between still feeling hopeful and just being exhausted? Like, you must see this. I think we're all exhausted. Yeah. And and. Because they've most of them, well, the set we have right now have all arrived, I think, with one exception, in the pandemic. And so right. there's there's some aspects of that that have complicated life a lot and resettlement a lot. Um, but I think there's these crazy moments of joy. There's these crazy moments of discovery. So I saw a couple little kids banging a ball around the parking lot about a month ago with sticks. I thought, well, that's just insane. We need to get some hockey sticks. So I, I scrounged and I got all, I got 20 like hockey sticks, cut them to every kid's size, labeled their name on it. And we had an official sticking in thing for the kids. Like, this is your hockey stick. You're Canadian, Canadian now. Oh. Boys, girls, everybody. What we a got symbol the for welcoming to Canada. And so we've been out playing ball hockey in the back oh. lot and just the, insi- okay, just sheer insanity. Yeah. And these I can little, only imagine these, the chaos. These, these, these little, these little girls, there's, there's these two little girls from Ethiopia and they are just like, this is serious. <laughs> and they can't even figure out which end to put the right. stick down but, most of the time. But, oh, but they're into it. They oh don't my know goodness. what the rules are, the objective is, but they're determined to win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and this is wonderful. But those moments of joy, um, or when, when one of our families has finally got PR status, yeah. or their, their, their refugee claim has been accepted or whatever, and just the, the sheer joy and the weeping and the excitement. And oh. you, you've got the mom from Ethiopia hugging the woman from Syria or the woman from Mexico. And you're like, there's this, these moments of connection and community where you see like divine joy break into the mundane and the darkness. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty, like that's rich for me. That immerses me. Like it's a mutuality. Right. I'm right. not there to, condescend and, and take care of people i'm there just to be a neighbor and to share my ups and downs like this week my i lost my grandmother mm-hmm. um, Sorry. and i you know i told a couple of my neighbors about that and there was a real sense like uh, yeah. we all knew what we were talking about and they can care for you now too yeah in a way that a lot of my canadian friends would be like well um i'm so sorry man you know yeah. And yeah. like uh you know she's yeah. in a better place well no yeah. don't tell me oh. that well they were your neighbors yeah they, yeah. They, yeah, they were really my neighbors. And so there's a mutuality. There's a there's a connection there. That kind of relationship between tiredness um, and joy or like uh, despair and hope. The, uh, you've written and, and talked about uh, the concept of suffering um, in some of the academic work and your practical work that you've just been uh, talking about. 
what what would you say to us about like the relationship between hope and and suffering um what what do you have to kind of tell us about what you've and maybe i mean you've just really basically referred to your own personal story it's clear that there's some some difficulty and suffering there um so what would you have to say to us about suffering that kind of maybe comes from being informed from the academic sense but just on that on that ground level like feet on the ground what the relationship between hope and suffering is Ooh. I guess I'll cycle back to the book of Job in that I feel like orthodox theology is actually the character that's on trial in the book and these orthodox theodicies of this is how the universe works and this mm-hmm. is how suffering works and this is one of the reasons a lot of people hate the book is that it feels like there's not a satisfying answer. But I think coming to grips with the fact that there is not a satisfying answer is part, it sounds really funny, mm-hmm. but this is actually part of the hope that comes out of how do we negotiate suffering. Mm. Like this universe is infinitely complex and beautiful and bizarre and awful and terrible. Mm. And, and that is part of the answer. We don't get it. It's random. It's brutal. It's horrible. But if we try to put a cute little answer to it or a cute theological summary, we are going to be very frustrated and we're going to mm. in, we're actually going to enhance suffering. Hmm. Mm. But if we embrace suffering, starting a little, sounding a little Buddhistic here, but mm. um, if we embrace suffering and live with it, and then recognize the moments of beauty and joy, I think there is actually some comfort there. Mm-hmm. And that's, at least that's how I come at it. Do you notice a difference in a, not to like castigate our own culture and our own, you know, relative comfort and ease compared to much of the world, but in circumstances like yours, like just your living situation where you come across people, your neighbors with people who may have experienced, you know, tremendous suffering, is it is it difficult to, you know, the suffering that then the average like Vancouverite mm. talks about as suffering? I mean, because I don't think it's necessarily a virtue to say, oh, those people haven't suffered. These ones have really suffered, right? But you must feel from your neighbors um, who've come from other places that they must have different views of suffering. I, I, I think so, I, and especially different views of what poverty is. Hmm. Uh, and so I have a lot of connections in the downtown east side. I work a lot with um, aspects of that world. And then I look at my, my friends of where they've come from, and they look at the situation here, and they have a lot of commentary on <laughs> what they see in, uh, in Wally and in the downtown east side. They're like, Mr. Hootie, what's going on? This makes no sense. <laughs> and it's like, oh. So one of the things that's helped me is, there are different layers or different aspects. There's a f- I have a friend, Wendy Taze, who, who's done a lot of talking on this. I don't. She, she should write something. She really should. Um, she works for Food for the Hungry. Mm. But she talks a lot about different forms of poverty and um, relational poverty and poverty between us and the creation, like the universe mm. that we inhabit or poverty that we have in our relationships with each other. Like I think people in Vancouver are desperately impoverished like especially neighborhoods like this one mm-hmm. where they are so disconnected yeah, from each other. Suburban. Yeah. 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 I live in a 50-year-old rundown building, yeah. 800 <laughs> square foot rundown apartment and I am one of the richest people on the planet. 
So what's poverty? Poverty is very, is, is more mm-hmm. complex than having material wealth. I, I could be living in a refugee camp and be far richer than I am now. <laughs> and so I think, so that, that's about poverty, and that's also about suffering is, too. Yeah. I worked, uh, I, I lived, when we first got married, we were living in a home for elderly Holocaust survivors in Israel. And um, I, I can't even begin to understand the measure of suffering that some people have, have gone through. But in some ways, it's also relative. Like there's mm. a way, like your suffering is your suffering. Yeah, that's that's. And I will never, yeah. I will never be able to fully yeah, embrace so what oh, you've you're gone not, through. Yeah. No, like I, 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 whatever you've gone through, whatever loss you've experienced is completely yours, and it's completely w- weighty, and it's completely valuable, and it's completely real. And I can't, I, sh- it's dangerous to begin to measure it, and yeah. say, well, yours is worse than yours. It's, no, it's not. It's useless. I think that's a wonderful point because yeah there, there's times where you can go oh but my life isn't so bad look at all the things that I have why do I feel so bad why does it feel like all those sorts of things um I, I think that's a, a great point is there is there part that that you think that the people that you've encountered who who have suffered so much they understand and can have compassion for other people to go, no, 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 I know what that feels like. I know that it's not the same circumstance, but I get what suffering feels like. I get that anxiety. I know that stress. And they have like a measure of compassion for people who maybe are, you know, materially better off than them, but are still suffering in other ways. So like, if I'm understanding, you're you're asking like, does the suffering that they've gone through inform their compassion? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. I think it does. Um, But I also find that, Sometimes people are like, they'd be like, well, they don't know anything what they're talking about, rich Canadians. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> I wish I had that suffering. Yeah. I, <laughs> I remember there's one little girl and she, she was recently arrived and she would look down. I have, a, I have a car, you know. So, and she would be like, mama, why can't we have a car? How come they have a car? <laughs> You're like, oh man, I have guilt because of a car. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, uh, uh, yeah. On the other hand, like I saw something really cool with my students and some of the stuff I was doing with them, and they, you know, some of them came from like little town. You would know this from Columbia. They yeah. came from like nosebleed Manitoba, and they're like, they've never suffered a day in their life comparatively. They have like you know, right. wonderful, loving nuclear they've never family. Even stepped outside the bubble. They, they've never thing. even been in a downtown, and, no, and they're it's just a very like different experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, and they'll they'll tell me like before they go on these trips is like I feel so inadequate. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. But do you love people? Do you care? If you care, that's enough. Yeah. And you'll learn the rest along the way. No, and I, r- I remember when, when I was at Columbia, I did, uh, well, at least they used to do a weekend trip yep. to the downtown east side, staying in the Ivanhoe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. did that. <laughs> and, I mean, one of the, the biggest <laughs> things, like, they kind of did some, like, prep talk with us, and they were, like, mostly just see people. Like, they're, they're not used to being seen. They're used yeah. to everybody just walking by them, like make eye contact with people, smile at them, say hi. If they want to talk, just talk with them. Like you're, you're not here. You're not needing to fix anything. But there was part where, um, that that's really foreign. Like for me, I, I I remember having to be conscious about like, okay, okay, I can do this, and like, why am I scared about this? And totally, yeah. I think that those experiences are are really good because even though I grew up in Vancouver, I grew up in Surrey. Um, in like the Guilford Wally area. So like there's there's poverty there. Yes. Certainly. Um I I know that I hadn't experienced really what like the downtown east side felt like. And the amount of times that I would just walked by somebody and just looked at them, smiled at them, 
like just sat down for a few minutes. It was, yeah, it, it was wonderful to see that that level of human connection, like something so simple actually mm. like was helpful for them. And I think probably really helpful for me to, to rehumanize people. Totally. This, my, my little sidekick here, Tahila, <laughs> she's here hanging nearby us today. She, some years ago, um, I had been working in the downtown east side. And she'd asked a question when I come, came back and so she sat me down. She says, how did it go? <laughs> she was like five or six at the time. I said, well, <laughs> and I told her stories. You know, like, question that like, you're like, okay. Yeah. So I, you know, I told her the stories about what, some of the people we met, some of the things that were going on. And she, she said, wait here. She runs back to her room, comes back with this little tin with all these little cards written out in the tin. She says, you, Abba, you tell me that you can't fix things. Hmm. She says, but I was thinking. She says that people need to know that a little girl named Tahila loves them. Huh. And she'd written on these cards, I love you, and a picture, like a little stick picture. She's like five or six. And her name and six. Yeah, six, I think she wrote down because she was six at the time. And so we packaged those up, and we were delivering oh. them in, in with cards and socks and stuff like that in our neighborhood. And... There was this humanizing aspect because everybody, and this is this this plays into the story I was trying to tell in the uh, theology of fentanyl paper, yeah. is everybody to a person that we talked to wanted to give back, mm -hmm. and with a hug, with warmth, with connection, and I got hugged an awful lot that day, <laughs> and those hugs spoke to my soul. Yeah. I needed those hugs. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to be get like there, there, there's yeah. this reciprocity. There's yeah. this mutuality that goes on. I think we miss. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really easy to, to come at, at aspects of what people might call like charity or that sort of like social work with, with an, with an air of condescension going like, I have something to offer you. I have this like bit of knowledge that I'm going to help you. Blah, blah, blah. And, and I think that the mutuality, like understanding you're like, no, you are a human, I'm a human, we can have a connection, and and I can learn as much from you, probably more than what you can learn from me. And I, I think that, that that can be a real real struggle, that I know it's something that, that I know where I've wanted to put up those walls, because sometimes those emotional connections, like, they're hard. Yeah. Because if you choose to see somebody as a human, you actually have to see them. Totally. And, and it's hard to remain... Uh, neutral. It's hard to remain unaffected. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so, like there, there's, there's, in order to to choose to humanize people, it forces you to actually be uncomfortable with how things are. Yeah, we can so often be. I mean, I, I don't think I'm only speaking for myself here, but a bit of uh, in any of those kind of encounters and engagements, we can approach really quickly with like, what's this going to cost me? Okay. Uh, type of like you know how much how, like time, energy, everything like how like how much, you know like the need is so is so big in terms of, and what you're describing though is is the opposite of that. That once you once you're able to you know let go of fear or let go of, you realize that any kind of human engagement like that uh, brings brings more to all involved, right? That that builds things up. That uh, I was thinking about the the notes on suffering as well and kind of the, you haven't, you, you know, what Canadian has experienced. I think probably that's a little bit of what people are struggling with is that you can watch, you know, you can hear stories like the ones you tell about some of the people that live near you. We can see things on the news and people can watch that and go, they're experiencing that level of difficulty, pain, devastation, 
uh, and here I am sitting and I feel terrible. Like not about that thing, but just right. like I can barely yeah. manage my own life. And that, that, that sense sometimes of the meaninglessness or what is that, that can, can add to that kind of despair. Yeah. And it can create, it can create a, a false distance between us and others. And we can, don't feel like we yeah. share that, that yeah. darkness, but I, I think that's, yeah. uh, that's fall. Like it's not helpful. Like, no. Like, yeah. like what, what you've gone through is what you've gone through. And you, you, we all understand suffering and pain to a, to a point. And, yes. and we share that. Like yeah. that's the, the single human universal, I guess, in some ways, the suffering. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, very much. Uh, one more question. Sure. Before we, and that is uh, <laughs> moving from, well, it's not moving from suffering to hope because we've talked about the, how the two suffering are related. permeates um, everything. What, what makes you hopeful about the future right now? Theologically, academically, uh, religiously, socially, like what gives you hope about the future? Okay, so I'm cynical at the best of times <laughs> about the big picture things. Yeah. But I think in the last couple of years uh, of teaching, which has been really refreshing, it's seeing um, students coming out of or in spite of the evangelical mm-hmm. mess and going, yeah, we don't buy it. We're, we're doing things differently. And so seeing the hope in the eyes of my students, seeing the, the ways that they are tearing down uh, false edifices and they're picking f- very important fights mm. about gender and sexuality and, some, and saying, wait a second, we're not, we're done. And they're not just hiding up in the ivory tower. They're actually engaged quietly and privately and secretly in all sorts of cool things and all sorts of cool movements and working with, like I had students who were just like, you know, I need some advice. You know, I, a couple of us rented a house and we, we, we moved some refugees in with us, but we're not sure what we're doing. You're like, you did what? That's <laughs> you awesome. need some advice. <laughs> but but there's this, this rugged sense yeah. of we are not waiting for the old people to do things for us. We're just mm. going to live the life that we feel we're supposed to live. And I see that in some of them, not all of them by all means, but yeah. and that gives me hope. It should. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. good stuff. Like it's yeah. positive. It's helpful. Oh, fantastic. Well, listen, uh, all the work you're involved with, the things that just, just to speak with you and to be getting to know you, um, we want to wish you well in your academic work. Um, we know how, what, mm. what an undertaking that yeah. is and how, um, but we're glad you're doing it. Like when you say that, you know, the Orthodox theology is, is what's on trial, that obviously has implications for how we think of religion and faith and theology right now, right? So uh, that ac- academic work can seem like you're in a tunnel, but it matters. It matters oh. to people like us. And, oh, thanks. As you know. uh, and also kind of we'll close with this this picture from New Hope that you talk about the moments of joy and that, what people are largely driven by is this expectation, this hopeful expectation of the future. Um, may that in many ways be true yeah. for all of us. So thanks so much for, yes. for sharing your time with us. It's just been fantastic. Hey, and thanks. we will continue the conversation. Cool. Thanks. Thanks.